Hello, and welcome back to the Annex. My name's Coy, and today I'm joined again with Dr. Gillian Kerr. Uh, today we talk about science fiction, pretty much exclusively. She's a big fan of science fiction, has been reading it for a number of decades now. I follow in her footsteps, and I've been a pretty big fan myself, but I'm more drawn to a lot of pop culture stuff. So between the two of us, I'd like to think uh, we get a pretty interesting conversation going here. So without further ado, please sit back and enjoy my conversation with Dr. Gillian Kerr on science fiction. So I've started recording, so... Um, oh, okay. It may may work, it may not. Okay, great. And uh, I was thinking about what to talk about, and I liked what we were talking about with science fiction. Oh, wonderful. Cool. Is that what you want to do? I'd love to. And uh, if this recording doesn't work, then we'll just uh, do it again. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Always good to <laughs> listen to science fiction uh, and, and to talk about it. So, um, okay. How do you want to uh, start it? You, well, you lead. Well, yeah. Um, I usually introduce a little, I record a little intro beforehand. So probably would have, uh, any audience members would have heard that. Um, we're back with uh, Gillian Kerr. And I don't think you listened to our first episode that we posted. Is that right? That's right. <laughs> I, I couldn't bear it. I don't look in the mirror either. <laughs> okay. Well, I listened to it and I really enjoyed it. So oh, that's good. Um, wanted to get you back. And uh, I was kind of inspired because I was listening to a podcast um, that was talking about how modern technology, specifically uh, the going to the moon, the kind of uh, the American desire to go to the moon as an objective was uh they were arguing had started in science fiction writing uh -huh. and saying that science fiction and stories in general really are what shape public consciousness which then allows uh kind of its seeds um or it sows the the ground for policy change um that was kind well, of the beginning but what was interesting to me i think the most yeah. part was that the the journalist had done the research but wasn't a fan of science fiction <laughs> and right. i said well i need to get gillian on because she's a big huge fan of science fiction you've been reading it for decades now yeah. and just to talk about kind of the history of sci-fi uh not only historically but also subjectively from you having kind of been living through it and reading the books as they um as the different popular genres are coming and going. Well, that's great. Is that a good intro? Yeah, this is great. <laughs> so shall I just uh, pitch in? Um, uh, I, I was thinking about science fiction when you and I talked about it a few days ago. And uh, mm -hmm. um, and you were talking about the, um, the relevance of science fiction to policy. So I was thinking about that. And science fiction, uh, it's a cult. It's a genre. And uh, it's... <laughs> um, often disparaged by people who uh, think of themselves as being into literature, which annoys those of us who are into science fiction. Um, and uh, I like genre writing. I like uh, a trashy science fiction. I also like good stuff. And um, some of the authors that I like are, have described science fiction as being the genre of ideas. So mm -hmm. that's science fiction at heart is about having an idea or a number of ideas and then working them through 
in in the in the role um, of how beings interact with those ideas. And that makes it different from fantasy. And there's a lot of controversy about what are the boundaries of science fiction. So um, people, I don't know what the what the vocabulary is now, but when I got into science fiction in, in the 70s, um, people in the SF arena hated sci-fi. Um, so you, you had to use SF instead of sci-fi. And then there was all this oh. <laughs> controversy about does SF include fantasy? And it could be speculative fantasy or speculative fiction with, you know, ghosts and monsters and werewolves and that stuff. Is that science fiction or not? And that fight continues to go on. Um, and I like both of them and a lot of people into SF like both of them, but they really are different. Uh, in terms of the influence on policy, there's not a lot of influence on policy with dinosaurs and uh, um, uh, vampires and uh, werewolves and so <laughs> on. The yeah. influence on policy has to do with the genre that is seriously thinking through the implications of something happening or an idea. And uh, a lot of the early science fiction writers were scientists uh, or mathematicians. Mm -hmm. And it was their opportunity to think through some of the implications of what they were doing. Um, what was I? Um, I was also reading um, recently about an anthology of science fiction that was written by social activists. So these were most of them were not uh, science fiction writers, but the mm -hmm. anthology developer said, almost by definition, if you're a social activist, you are a science fiction writer because you have an idea about what's possible and you're de devoting your life to bring about this future reality that you have in your mind. Hmm. And so anybody who's into technological development or social justice or activism is living in a story of their own making or of the a making of the community they're in. And they're working to either bring it into reality or to prevent it from going into reality. And, and so science fiction writers will surface what's going on. So you, you hear Trump and his cohort, they've got this dystopian science fiction story about these southerners coming, pouring over the border <laughs> and taking over. And you hear them and it's vivid. It's a story. Right. And they're living it. Mm -hmm. um, and what um, we're surrounded by a lot of dystopian um, stories, a lot of dystopian visions of technology, like, you know, the Facebook and Google and so on taking over and their, uh, the, the, um, uh, the risk to our privacy. Um, uh, all, all of these are totally legitimate. And it's the kind of stories that we should be telling as part of our risk assessment. Science yeah. fiction writers are really good at that. Uh -huh. But we also need the utopian versions because we need to come up with policy ideas that are worth pursuing that use technology, not just all the stuff that, that we need to avoid. So that's the sort of the things I was thinking about. That's very, that's a lot. I mean, uh, <laughs> so much. I, it's interesting, just the last thing you said, talking about kind of the dystopian worldview uh, and the popularity of dystopian stories. Um, it also reminds me of the anti-hero which has become mm -hmm. such a major popular protagonist mm -hmm. in, in modern culture and fiction, whether it's uh, science fiction or, or, you know, something like Breaking Bad. Yeah. Um, and it goes, 
I guess you could take that all the way back into the film noir and, and even earlier with these kind of questionable, these more um, protagonists with, with questionable morals or protagonists who may not necessarily be the knight in shining armor um, and kind of a, a reaction yeah. to that. But then it's become this uh, looking at these people who don't care about rules and don't have any ethical guidelines beyond one or two usually selfish things. Um, and it's they, I, it feels like they go hand in hand. I don't think always that the antihero is in a dystopian story necessarily, but um, it just reminded me kind of when you said that it's more of an individualized version of it. That's this is uh, cool because it, we we're talking about an antihero now. I should mention that I'm not um, uh, I'm not an English uh, I'm not a literature expert. I, I'm a science fiction fan. Um, right. So um, I've been a science fiction fan since I was a teenager in uh, the '60s and have been mm-hmm. reading it uh, devotedly since. Um, but uh, so the antihero, you have a few different kinds of antihero. One is like from the Western. And as you mentioned last um, last week when we were talking, a lot mm-hmm. of science fiction came straight out of the Westerns. So you have this this being, you know, from uh, yeah. in, in a lawless uh, uh, society. And the freedom of not being tied down by all these rules is really liberating. And um, uh, Jack Reacher stories are like that, where you got this guy who's uh, a knight errant. So that comes right out of uh, even James Bond. Well, the knight, yeah, that's true. So you've got James Bond, you have Reacher. They Mm -hmm. are uh, scary people. You want them on their side and they're not bound by our usual rules. And they Mm -hmm. go around and they protect the the weak and they fight the the evil ones. That's always satisfying. It doesn't matter whether it's science fiction or, or, uh, you know, romances or mysteries or thrillers. It's just a standard. Or Clint Eastwood Uh, as the the silent protagonist. Yeah. So, uh, and science fiction, crummy science fiction, you get, uh, you know, you get these typical tropes, these cliches, and they're put into a situation with aliens and, uh, you know, cast iron bikinis. And <laughs> it, it's not very interesting. That's not, it's not a genre of ideas. It's just a thriller with um, different costumes. Which is interesting because uh, Star Wars basically fits what you're talking about there. Exactly. Uh, even though well, it's a and, science fiction realm. Arguably. Exactly. And Star Wars has the hero journey. It was informed heavily by Joseph Campbell, the, mm-hmm. the Jungian analyst. And it was a totally uh, a very, very old fashioned, satisfying story with, you know, cast iron bikinis. And, yeah, quite uh, literally. And spaceships. Yeah. yeah, that's right. It was and, and princesses. Laser swords. Oh, yeah. And there wasn't a lot of new stuff in Star Wars. No. No, quite old. literally, he used um, yeah. footage from World War II dogfights to edit his oh, own uh, TIE fighter, X-Wing fights and stuff. So it was, he was very much, I think at the most you could say is that he was pulling in some philosophy from Buddhism, maybe, or from kind of the Eastern sources uh, to give some depth to his Jedis. But beyond that, he, it was yeah. all very, it wasn't new ideas. He was kind of bringing in old ideas. And and the subgenre science fiction has lots hundreds of mm. subgenres. That subgenre is space opera. 
Right. And space opera always involves spaceships and battles and people, you know, hopping into a ship and then going for several light years. And then uh, they deal with the light year problem and the time uh, distortion in different ways. But it's, you know what you're reading. It's just like reading a Western. Mm -hmm. I wanted to talk about another kind of antihero. Yeah. So you've got the antihero like Jack Reacher or Clint Eastwood mm -hmm. um, or uh, the one that Han, Han Solo. Yeah. The, the smuggler. And then you have... Yeah, this this the the swashbuckling smuggler. Then you have one that's related, and that has to do with a uh, response to injustice. So this has to do with um, Bruce Schneier, who's the security analyst. Um, uh, so he writes about security. He's not a science fiction writer. Okay. Um, when he talks about uh, system security problems he says that any complex system has parasites so whatever you set up whether it's a banking system or citizenship or anything you have people that are playing the uh rules and hmm. taking advantage of it finding the weak spots um smugglers right pirates and he said you kind you can't get rid of the parasites uh, and in a in a system that has some injustice you absolutely need the parasites so the parasites test, uh, they test the system so that you're, it's an arms race, right? You're constantly uh, fixing um, zero day exploits. Um, people are constantly uh, trying to break through security systems and you're uh, tracking them. You can never prevent all of them because people, are, humans are just too clever for that. So the black uh, hat hacker, uh, the smuggler, the pirate, that's all part of that. It's a system, it's this big system with lots hmm. of rules. And there is a place for people to break it, sometimes just because rules are meant to be broken and that's fun mm -hmm. to read. But uh, if if you have uh, a system that is run by a government or a dictator or something, uh, somebody who's, who's ethically problematic, then the skills of the, of the pirate are completely fundamental to protect um, the society. So, so antiheroes have different roles. Well, that reminds me of just as a little tangent. That reminds me of one of the, a book that I read growing up, Hagakure, which is written by um, a retired samurai in the Middle Ages. Uh -huh. I think it would have been sixteen, seventeen hundreds, and is a series of little sayings. But one of them is, uh, "A clear stream is avoided by fish. If there are weeds in the stream, the fish can thrive behind." There you go. That's right. So even back then, there was this kind of understanding. Um, anyone who can look at a complex system really understands that. That's right. And and you can never have a perfect uh, system. There's always going to be areas where um, there are gaps and where there are problems. And, uh, it, you know, the, the whole music streaming um, situation where many people became mm -hmm. criminals because we wanted music and we couldn't buy the music. Mm -hmm. Um, legally. Yeah, there was a kind of gap in the market. There was right? a gap in the market. And so the music companies uh, said, you know, don't steal, don't pirate. This is bad. You're being bad. But eventually, right. it's like a boycott. When you've got enough mm -hmm. people smuggling and you've got enough people in a culture that says um, your rules are not legitimate. And I'm thinking about the U.S. in relation to um, – uh, England, but also, uh, you know, any kind of smuggling situation when the local population 
uh, rejects the authority, the legitimacy of the, the power, uh, then mm -hmm. smuggling becomes sort of a way that everybody handles things. And then the, the government or the people in power have to adjust the customs accordingly. It's We're like also a, seeing a that now way. with uh, how cannabis is being legalized, it's not just exactly in Canada right. federally, but it's across It's exactly the, the States, same the thing. World. So you could say, oh, don't break the rules. Bad, bad. Don't go against the law. Well, then how does social mm -hmm. change happen? It happens with all of these people breaking the rules. Right. Until the rules have to adjust. Right. Interesting. And and, that also yeah. reminds me of uh, some people break the rules because of altruistic purposes. Some do it for selfish purposes and some do it just for fun. Because. Um, yeah, <laughs> just because. And it's uh, kind of the collection of all of those, the aggregate of all those rule breakers is when you start to see if yeah. there's critical and, change. And so the antihero, are, are, there's lots and lots of different types of antiheroes and they all... Um, uh, they're fun reading because they all involve some kind of rejection against the, the roles that we're all supposed to play as good good kids and good parents. And, and uh, an antihero will say, ah, no way, I'm going to act in a bad, bad way. And then you can right. read it and enjoy it. Mm -hmm. But that's not, that's not science fiction so much. No, no, that's just, a, I, I was just kind of sparked because it reminded me of dystopias. Um, yeah. Or I was reminded of it when you mentioned dystopias, um, which are becoming massively popular. And and we've talked also previously about uh, there's an article I read months ago kind of saying a call out for to sci-fi writers that we need utopias. Yeah. And you've mentioned this as well, I think. Well, uh, I think we need it because you've it, like the dystopias. They're boring, right? Uh, like, um, once <laughs> you have a. A dystopia. Well, what, what what I've seen over the years is a dystopia is is created and refined. So you have the Hunger Games dystopia, and then people mm -hmm. riff on it. That's great. So it's like let's explore this. What does it look like? And then and then it becomes just a cliche. It's done. And and the right. neat thing about science fiction is that it's a genre of ideas. And so as it progresses, you you get the um, you get people exploring ideas you get some awful writers some good writers <laughs> then it's explored and standards are laid down and then future science fiction builds on those standards or challenges them it's like how music evolves mm -hmm. and so the ideas um move over time and some i you know you cringe when you read something 20 years ago it's like ugh, that has been figured out we have moved on anybody writing about that now would just be it would be like writing uh, an Agatha Christie um, mystery well, and, where and at the same time, it's it. also why some science fiction can survive past when the technology is obsolete, whereas others don't. Right. Uh, like some what, science... Like which, what are you thinking of? I can think of one, but do you have one in mind? Well, I was thinking of, I mean, offhand the snow crash, which is a great okay, yes. Uh, yes. story. And, yeah. you know, he, he goes into a lot of, uh, was it William Stevenson? Neil Stevenson yeah. um, goes into a lot of detail about how you jack into this metaverse, metaverse this right. virtual reality, and right. the amount of uh, megabytes required. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> and a lot yeah. of that stuff is totally obsolete. And we kind of that that version of that part of the technology has changed or adapted or gone beyond what he was considering. But right. because it's based in an idea, which is just he just had to explain how to get to that point, and then he could expand on the idea. And yes. so the idea, if you can kind of get past, okay, yeah, we get it. That's an old concept. Um, 
then you the the ideas and the way that he's uh, looking at them and playing with them, which is you know language as uh, a virus and that sort of stuff. That stuff is it's, fully Snow relevant. Snow Crash is still filled with with live ideas. Mm-hmm. You're right. Some of them have gone on, and you just laugh. Uh, you know, getting on a motorcycle and going through empty space for yeah. hours. You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think so, but. Others, the language is a virus. Um, the way that, uh, like uh, three ring binders, people don't use anymore. Right, but um, it's readmes. It's the same exactly. Protocols. It's the same idea, but not uh, with paper. Mm-hmm. So there's stuff that's old. Um, anything to do with um, dealing with racialization or gender is almost certainly going to be cringingly out of date twenty years later, <laughs> unless it was originally written by uh, somebody from who identified as gay or lesbian or um, the left uh, hand of darkness is still very interesting. Yeah, no, no, that's the left hand of darkness. If you reread that, it's you roll your eyes. You say, what, what a clueless guy could, couldn't he, like he was so uh, stuck in his own expectations about gender. He couldn't see what was in front of him. So it's it's like uh, the old movies where there's this big reveal and it turns out to be a guy dressed as a woman or vice versa. We just go, oh yeah, right. That's been done. Interesting. So so Snow Crash still has things that haven't been fully incorporated and and worked out. Another one that I I reread every few years, I I still love it, is uh, Dracula. Really, uh, the original one by Bram Stoker. Bram Stoker, yeah. And now that I, uh, there are elements of that that I would call science fiction. It has to do with globalization. Um, it is the uh, Stoker was fascinated by technology. Wow. And there's all this like you uh, transcribe the interviews on wax cylinders, and <laughs> nah. you've you've got the new ways of thinking about uh, psychiatric problems, and and some of the things that he's working on are still alive, and mm. he it's it's great trash like <laughs> uh, it it has so it has something for everybody that uh, story, and so it's still alive if you read it. Interesting. There's um yeah the way that. Uh, women's uh, role, um, what happens with global trade where you can ship uh, a coffin? Uh, it's a it's a virus. It's a type of virus, right? Right. So yeah. the globalization of viruses through the trade routes. Wow. Um, the role of the legal system in supporting that and so on. It's just, it's all there. Oh, that's very interesting. I hadn't, I, it, yeah, I hadn't, I had never considered that. That's, that's really deep. Also, in that period, you also have Sherlock Holmes, which was at the time so influential for actual contemporary detective work that they, I think Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was hired by the Metropolitan Police at the time as a consultant. Mm -hmm. Um, He also believed in fairies. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Conan Conan Doyle is exactly that division in in science fiction. You got hard science fiction, really science based, math based, and then you got fairies and trolls. And uh, uh, Doyle, you know, was on both sides. Well, and the character still remains relevant, right? Just a few years ago, you had the whole BBC resurgence and they modernized the entire thing. But because it's the idea of, you know, when you have. Uh, when you're able to process information at a certain level, what can you extrapolate and what can you figure out? And we're in an information age where 
you can have access to more information. So it's still a relevant issue. It is, and and it goes back to that uh, defining science fiction as as a genre of ideas. Mm. Sherlock Holmes, totally mysteries for sure, but it was also, uh, um, I may be overstating this, um, and and <laughs> and I haven't thought it through, mm-hmm. but, um, yeah, I'll drop okay. it. It would be <laughs> worth uh, reading again and and seeing whether I could make that stick. Uh, I I remember what I remember um, is a. Uh, uh, Watson saying to Holmes something about the uh, the sun, the, the earth revolving around the sun. And Holmes said, really? I didn't know that. And uh, oh, wow. Watson said, what do you mean you didn't know it? And Holmes said, I shall now do my best to forget it instantly so that I can keep room in my mind for more useful information. Huh. <laughs> so he's very pragmatic about the information he chose to. Uh, and that's one of the things that made the character so fun is his kind of choice. Yeah, of what he exactly. Yeah. What he threw away. Uh, going back to utopias, I mean, the the last major and probably the most famous, you could argue, utopian storyline would be Star Trek. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so space opera. But hard, trying um, to be hard as much as they yeah. could in uh, television. Well, that's space opera. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. A space opera is, is, is they pick and choose what oh. they want to take seriously. <laughs> okay. Right, yeah. It is funny, having rewatched some of the episodes recently, you could tell uh, when certain episodes were written by more sci-fi-centric writers and other others were yeah. more wanting to deal with social issues and they kind of say, yada, 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 yeah. science reasons. Um, exactly. And other authors would say, no, it's all about the specific uh, physical properties of this thing and that thing and really get into it. Exactly. Yeah, and that's uh, it's it's a neat thing about science fiction is that that is legitimate. So you can say um, it's like a game where you set up the rules at the mm-hmm. beginning. Um, so some people are really really uh, hard hard SF is uh, you know based on usually physical science, mathematical science. And if you break the rules, like you got the orbits wrong, then they get indignant letters for years about you, you messed this up. Larry Niven famously, I think, right? Exactly. Ringworld. I I remember reading one of his old books and in the forward, he said, you know, in this edition, I've changed the orbital (laughs) speeds because of people who've written me with the proper mathematical equations, but doesn't change the story at all. Exactly. And, and and then and then you have the um, the ones where you you there's a lot of suspension of disbelief and um, I can't remember who was writing but he wrote some partly fantasy partly SF and he said please don't read please don't send me indignant <laughs> letters he said it's it's just like the Lord of the Rings there's a scene in the movie where uh, the fellowship is sitting around and they're having a tomato sandwich <sighs> and people wrote in with great indignation saying you know this is based in the UK culture and tomatoes were in the new world he said so you've got a troll yeah. <laughs> you've got fairies you have hobbits and they're complaining about the tomatoes. Yeah. So uh, science fiction is filled with the tomato problem where uh, if you're working on an idea and you're trying to work through that idea, you have to be honest about how you treat that idea. You have to take it seriously. Mm. There's a consistency. But other things you can say, ah, tomatoes. Like it doesn't matter. It's not part of the idea we're working through. So we just throw it in, suspend your disbelief. Don't write me. Right, that's the letters. world we have. Like that's not what we're trying to focus on for this story. 
Exactly. That's right. And it is impossible to get everything right. When you do world mm. building, um, if you, uh, for example, world building, you're in some, uh, you know, other, uh, you know, you've got two moons. Well, then you've got to deal with all the gravitational issues right. of two moons. Who can do that? Or two stars. <laughs> so let's just say two moons because they look cute. And otherwise, once in a while, somebody will mention a high tide. And otherwise, we'll just say there's two moons in the right. sky. Because we're not focusing on the tidal <laughs> yeah. zones That's right. and, and the timings. And yeah, uh, anyway, I kind of went off there. The The utopian versus dystopian, the, the utopian science fiction um, is necessary to uh, envision unanticipated consequences mm. um, of things that you want to do. If it's dystopian, I find it lazy because it's so easy to tear anything down. So I'm, I'm really agreeing with um, a, a number of science fiction writers now are saying we have a duty as science fiction writers to write utopian or at least not utopian, but optimistic stories about technology and how they're used well. And then working at, actually uh, Ursula Le Guin did that um, beautifully in The Dispossessed. Uh, but um, so you don't ignore the problems, but from an optimistic point of view, you show how the problems are dealt with. So and, that's something and interesting because it, it sparks this thing. I just uh, was listening to a podcast um, about the right to forget and this kind of modern concept. Uh, yes. Someone just won yeah. a Supreme Court case in the in or the EU, whatever their equivalent of the Supreme Court is there, uh, to to be allowed to have his data removed. Um, and yep. my, of course, knee-jerk reaction was 1984, because that's the job of the main character in that story is to be mm -hmm. deleting yeah. history. Um, but then when you get into it yeah. and you start actually looking at the real world implications of having done something when you're a kid exactly. and then anyone who looks up your name yeah. will see this immediately. And um, talking to, I think in the interview, they talked to a psychologist or a psychiatrist who said, you know, we're not designed to remember everything. We naturally forget. And so mm -hmm. in this case where when mm -hmm. we can, we have to kind of come we have to be more specific about how we forgive and can we forgive if we can't forget? Yes. Uh, and so that's interesting because yeah. in a way, 1984 was good to, to be able to say, you know, there are certain entities that should not be allowed uh, to be, to, to delete themselves and their own actions like countries, uh, governments, and these very important mm -hmm. factors, public interest stuff. But um, now that we're closer and living in the world, kind of that Orwell was envisioning. Uh, we have the other side of it where it's, okay, this is a real world. It's not a dystopia. Um, and we have to deal with yeah. what we do have to forget some things or allow people to be, uh, their actions to be forgotten, at least by a Google search. Yeah. Yeah. And, and many of these are, are obvious um, consequences of um, ubiquitous surveillance technologies. Uh, if mm -hmm. you're if you are a science fiction reader, you would have said, you know, years ago, it's like, oh, yeah, this is rolling down the pike. Um, yeah. And and so I know some governments hire science fiction writers to uh, roll out scenarios because that's what they're good at. But uh, I think it's it's a good idea to do that. Steve Mann, who's I don't think he's a science fiction writer, but he's a researcher at U of T who has worked in. Um, wearable 
surveillance um, gear uh, for decades, wrote um, decades ago about surveillance. So you've got surveillance, which means over. It means watching from above. You've got surveillance cameras all over the place. You have government surveying um, uh, citizens. And he said, with the mass, the explosion of wearable technology with cameras, you have surveillance, which is um, under, under from underneath. And he said, you're going to have this massive social dislocations by people taking videos of government, taking videos of police. And so it's already he, beginning. Well, it's begun several years ago. Yeah. He was writing about that uh, decades ago. And wow. um, so he would come into uh, a place with a security guard wearing his camera. He's a rather bizarre looking guy. And the security hmm. uh, people would get really uh, freaked out about it. And he'd say, well, you've got a camera up there. It's taking video of me. Uh, it's right. a public space. <laughs> Why can't I take a video of you? And it's really distressing to have somebody else record you without your permission and you've no idea how they're using that information. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what he, he's been doing as an object lesson is like a, a performance art of science fiction for, for, uh, for decades. Oh, wow. So I want to kind of move forward in terms of the timeline of science fiction, because uh, a lot of the references we've been making are either pop culture, severely pop culture, or, uh, kind of up until 1970s, 80s. Um, and I haven't been on the cutting edge of uh, literary science fiction, but I know that in terms of like the Nebula Awards and the, the sci-fi community, um, there's been a lot of, shall we say, upheaval recently because of um, a lot the of these white... puppies. Yeah. yeah. These white the male authors puppies. who are kind of challenged yeah. with new... Um, influx of people with new ideas who are not um, white men from America, middle class and this sort of stuff. Yeah. You've been keeping up with that more. And so kind of, I guess, wherever you want to take it, but uh, how things have changed, who's taking over the types of stories that are being told. um, Right. And um, again, I'm not, I don't study this as literature. Uh, In the last many decades, I uh, get into reading a lot of SF, and then I get bored with the um, the themes that they're working on that decade, and I may kind of drop <laughs> out, and then I go back and forth. Uh, yeah. But there's there's a, a few different streams, and you have the um, I'm not talking about Jules Verne and H.G. Wells, the, the people in the um, uh, there's even um, some early science fiction in the 1800s, uh, the 1900s. Mm-hmm. Um, I started reading in the 60s, and in the 60s, you had, uh, they referred to the golden age of science fiction. John mm-hmm. C. Campbell, editor in the 40s and 50s, where there were a lot of these square-jawed white guys. They right. almost always had a love interest who tended to be the scientist's lovely daughter. Right. Uh, you know, cute and intellectual. She let down her hair, and then she was beautiful. Um, <laughs> and often aliens and the white guys always won out. So they had a bit of a problem. They were threatened, but at the end, they, uh, you know, either conquered or they pushed away a conqueror or uh, something happened so that they remained on top. And right. then in the early 70s, and this is just from my perspective, I mm-hmm. liked it because I like science, always liked science. I really liked Larry Niven. 
Um, and uh, a lot of the like red uh, Asimov and Heinlein and all those, they had problematic descriptions of women, but you know, you just held your nose. If you liked science and you liked science mm -hmm. fiction, you just tried not to pay too much attention to that. And all right. of a sudden you had writers like Samuel R. Delaney, um, who wrote, uh, I still remember reading I and Gamora, which was one of his short stories. Um, I won't go into the plot, but it was mind blowing because he wrote from the, he's, uh, Delaney is uh, a gay man and he's black and he's a New mm. Yorker and he has written from very early on about the nature of desire and how desire is acted out um, between people who are the same people who are different. And uh, it really was mind blowing. It was um, a way of, exploring gender identity and sexuality and um, uh, family types. I, he was the first uh, author who would write completely matter-of-factly about group marriages. Uh, you know, uh, the, mm. uh, my five, uh, you know, three husbands and my two wives back at the farm planet, but I like to travel on spaceships, so I see them every few years, and the kids are being looked after on the farm. Um, there was so these matter of fact, matter of um, fact, yeah, statements that are challenging to whoever's the social mind blowing of the audience. Yes, which is what yeah. you want in a genre of ideas. You want something to go kapow and say, "I <laughs> hadn't thought of that." Um, then there was uh, then there was a whole group of uh, gays and lesbians and people of color writing science fiction with a social science um, twist to it. So they, hmm. the, the hard science fiction in, in these, these subgenres kind of vanished. It's like, yeah, you have spaceships, but there was no <laughs> attention at all about that. It was, um, uh, and that's where also it would bleed heavily into fantasy. Um, you know, like let's explore what it would be like to have dragons. So you have the dragon riders of Perth, which uh, they're dragons, but they treated them as science fiction elements, not as fantasy elements. So it was a lot of overlap. Once you got rid of the math and the, and the hard science and you were exploring ideas, then you, you know, mm -hmm. you'd have a, a, a world with two moons and trolls. And then you'd say, okay, let's work with this and, and maybe use anthropological approaches so that science part was the social sciences. This is really interesting because I feel like a lot of um, the audience of pop culture is becoming, uh, this is how audiences enjoy analyzing texts now. Um, in having studied stage combat, mm -hmm. for example, we talk a lot about how over the last 30, 40 years from the 1980s uh, in the action movies until, you know, the big change in Hollywood with The Matrix and then uh, now John Wick, mm -hmm. uh, there's these evolutions of complexity and styles in action. And they there might be precursors, but usually there's uh, a mm. shift because the audience is also able to keep up with the new action or the new complexity or understand what's happening. And uh, what's interesting now is you have, especially on YouTube, and I guess a lot of these people on YouTube might be uh, sci-fi nerds, um, kind of pulling apart um, movies and, and TV shows in the same way that the sci-fi authors would be kind of saying, okay, well, let's examine what would this world be yeah. like with dragons? And uh, a fan would say, okay, well, that's, you want to give me that movie? Well, let's, uh, why, why is this like this? Because why didn't you ever just think about that? Um, and, and so kind of taking that 
that element of watching something now is people are coming with this sense of, okay, well, mm -hmm. you know, you have to have a clear sense of what your thesis is because we're going to be looking at it from all these different angles and part of appreciating yeah. texts or I'm using texts as, you know, movies, TV, all that stuff uh, is being able to talk with other fans online about it and pull it apart and uh, praise what's, what's well thought out and uh, challenge what isn't um, like Harry Potter, even, you know, is Harry Potter a piece of pop culture or is it uh, a foundational piece of modern uh, fantasy? you know, as a big, um... well, what you're talking about is nerd culture. So, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. any, anything that nerds uh, like turns into this massive, I, and I would describe myself as a nerd as well, but you know, bicycles, mm -hmm. science fiction, um, you know, uh, fantasy, uh, Lord of the Rings, um, mystery, anything at all you can tear apart. So, for for sure, there's a lot more meta analysis than there ever was. It um, mm -hmm. used to be you'd you'd get this uh, dread. You go to the library, uh, you'd get this crumbling cheap paperback book because <laughs> it was science fiction was really low class. It was written in a cheap cheap paper that would disintegrate as you used it. Oh. <laughs> and I still have some of my own. All the papers are falling out because the glue is long since dried up. And right. uh, uh, it would uh, often be written dreadfully, like the, the quality of writing would be so bad that people who care about literature would read two pages and just cringe and close it and say they'd never <laughs> look at it again. Like Take yeah, a shower. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's all of this is, is correct. But if the mm -hmm. ideas are interesting enough, it doesn't, doesn't matter. Um, mm -hmm. And that makes it sound highfalutin. It's not. Um, right now, the... Each each uh, genre and subgenre and sub subgenre of science fiction, and they get incredibly detailed. Uh, like right. I don't write, I don't read military science fiction. Just bores me. I'm not that right. interested in robot fiction. I like space opera is fun uh, at, at times. I like social science fiction, steampunk. I've never understood the point of steampunk. Cyberpunk was great, I agree. and it's it's now <laughs> been done to death. So it's um, you know cyberpunk became modern fiction yeah at, exactly it's it's a it's the film noir of uh, science fiction it was really mm -hmm. um really innovative when it uh came up and then it was this is an, this is how science fiction works any literature works it was really innovative people mm -hmm. said well of course this is how it's going to work and then bang right. it got incorporated into science fiction and now it's it's a standard it's um it's like when you're setting up a sim you know it's like what genre you know what is it a big city is it fancy is it uh, uh cyberpunk well it's, i feel like any any mission impossible movie with tom cruise is now a, ver a variation of cyberpunk right and mm. any of these james bonds because it's just this they've been incorporated yeah all mm. of the kind of oh high-tech solutions and high-tech hacking and that's just now a part of mainstream narratives now that's interesting because um, that this is where if we were in literature would would tear apart cyberpunk so cyberpunk mm -hmm. for me is has a couple of different elements and i may be wrong uh, right but one of them mm -hmm. is um the whole idea of the the virtual reality and how it interfaces right. with uh, physical reality and the other right. is the under uh, the underbelly of society where how does technology look when uh, for people who have no money, 
because it hmm. it filters down. It's Blade Runner, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Blade Runner is one of the that's William right. Gibson so, said he stole my world, right? Yeah. So it's it's not <laughs> only the cyber; it's the punk as well. You got to have both of them. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that th- this is a nerd conversation. And then well, that's I think. Uh, and yeah. then what's fun <laughs> is when you combine them. So you you know you have these mixed genres and and then play around with them. But I think you were going somewhere, and I interrupted you. Where, where are you going? I'm not sure if I was. Hmm. Um, I mean, uh, just to kind of play out cyberpunk, I, I, a huge part of um, modern counterterrorism spy stuff is about, uh, you know, I think it, you could also trace it back militarily to Vietnam, mm-hmm. the Vietnam War, mm-hmm. where you have these people who are poor, poorer than us. They don't have access to our technology, yet they're somehow able to co-opt it. Um, and this is scary yeah. in whatever way we want to do it. And we'll add an ethnicity to it, uh, de jour, or a country de jour, um, and then they're the bad guys. Um, but it's, yeah. it's rarely, uh, I guess there were periods where you have kind of corporate, I mean, and to me as well, I think, you know, uh, capitalism and um corporatization of society is a big part of uh cyberpunk on the other side that's the good guys bad guys um that's that's a good example so it's a good uh, theme to pick up because much of earlier science fiction with the the white guy overcoming the aliens had to do with good guys Mm -hmm. bad guys so bad good guys look like us bad guys look like other things yeah and um a variant of that from the fantasy uh, world is Lovecraft, H.P. Lovecraft. And I was never a big fan of his, but when I kind of close one eye and, and read it, Lovecraft mm-hmm. is all around, uh, you know, white people coming up against something that is really alien, extremely alien yeah. so that your perceptions uh, change. And that almost by definition is evil in a Lovecraftian scene. So they have this really pessimistic right. view of uh, you've got us in our, in our little white picket fences and anything mm-hmm. outside of that is evil. And so in the last few years, what science fiction has been trying to deal with is how do you handle beings who are really different from you mm-hmm. without calling them bad guys? And uh, Octavia Butler, who mm. I mentioned last week uh, goes mm-hmm. further than that. She's um, a black woman, a lesbian. She uh, died a few years ago uh, from a fall quite recently, but she wrote science fiction from the perspective of uh, people who have been conquered. So instead of we're the conquerors and in the story, there's a, a risk that we might be conquered, but we prevail at the end. She writes stories from the perspective of we've already been conquered. Now what do we do? How do we how do we live? How do we uh, manage a relationship with our conquerors? Because that's the situation. How do we have children and bring up children in a context where we've been conquered? Is it possible to have a a, a real relationship of any reciprocity? between a conquered person and a conqueror, but not done from the perspective of a conqueror, from the conquered. And that's, uh, uh, she's, I love her work. Yeah. Cause I, when I, my first thought was of district nine, which is by yeah. a South African, uh, filmmaker. Um, and that's, you know, this kind of using aliens as a, 
parable well, for yeah. uh, apartheid, basically. Um, but it is still from the position of humans who are the position of the authority as opposed to the oppressed. And that might be a constraint of having uh, money for uh, a movie. A movie. Because um, yeah. I haven't, I, haven't wa- I, I don't watch science. Well, the main, the main, the main shift in that story actually is the protagonist becomes an okay. alien, which is it that goes through a transformation like the fly. Okay. That um, is modern science fiction. So modern science fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, now you, you mentioned uh, the sad puppies. So there's a, a rift in science fiction between people who like the old way of doing it, where, you know, you go out, you got your submachine guns and you blow down the aliens and then, you know, women are glad of it. And then this newfangled <laughs> stuff, which is very disturbing. And the newfangled yeah. science fiction is driven by identity and um, an awareness of oppression and dealing with differences. And that drives the other ones nuts. So mm. um, I think some of the most interesting science fiction right now is coming out of Africa and coming out of the African diaspora. Mm. Um, so and I later on, I can give you some books that you might be interested in. Well, you can give some names here if people are listening, <sighs> just to throw oh, out some. Oh, crumbs. Um, I'm I'm blanking. So Octavia Butler for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, and I've got a, a whole list on my mind, but I can't retrieve any of them. No, so of course. <laughs> I'll, I'll send you a, a list. On the spot, um, you weren't prepared. Um, oh yeah. But also, but there's, there's one one woman oh, that's yeah. written a, a a challenge to Harry Potter. So uh, oh, a wow. group of kids uh, learning magical skills in Africa. And it's just brilliant. Wow. Well, and there's also, um, and I forget his name, but he was, uh, he's a science fiction author and indigenous, um, judge, I believe, as well as trapper and, um, uh, you know, oh, his, yes. how, how he identifies himself, Canadian man. Yeah. yeah Harold, uh, Harold Johnson. Mm-hmm. He's fantastic. He wrote mm-hmm. Corvus, um, and, uh, and a few other SF, stories that I think are high quality, but uh, dense and, and difficult to read. So they, they're challenging. They wouldn't be um, sort of the light uh, trash read. Right. And coming from a totally different cultural perspective. So maybe yeah. more difficult for us <laughs> trying to kind of parse, uh, not having the traditions to... Well, he's Cree. And uh, as you say, Harvard-educated lawyer, um, has his own trap line, uh, writes about... Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 First Nations, and also how the, that interfaces with the legal system and technology in the future. So it's really dense, wonderful stuff. That's very cool. It's amazing how relevant. Um, I uh, I was going to say Star Trek, but I'm just going to kind of point to the next generation because that's the one that I know the most of. Um, as a pop TV show, uh, a lot of the points that have been said still, while they might not have been leaned on, uh, were there in some form. Uh, you know, Star Trek is as of this utopian society or reaching towards a utopian society. Uh, learn, I learned that Gene Roddenberry constantly fought with his uh, writers because they would be looking for storylines and he was adamant that all of the crew were friends and could not have internal strife between them like jealousy or this sort right. of thing because they were friends right um the the idea that uh whether you go to kirk or you look at the next generation um they're bringing in 
crew members and allies that look different, whether they're just different types of humans or these different aliens, but they're still working together, right? So this sense of this is something we can deal with. Uh, now, is obviously it was of its time, and it's only going to be so far um, in depth or thoughtful. Uh -huh. But it's interesting that those those are kind of all present in some nascent form within the early Star Trek series are the ones that were really controlled by Gene Roddenberry. Yeah, Gene Roddenberry was a serious science fiction writer. And uh, a lot of science fiction movies were not written by science fiction writers. They were Westerns in space mm -hmm. or romances in space or whatever. And so, yeah, Star right. Trek, uh, pretty lightweight in some ways. Um, but part of it, mm -hmm. the reason it, it's so comical now when you watch it is that many of the... <laughs> transformative and radical ideas were, were incorporated and now are complete um, their tropes. So for example, it was outrageous at the beginning that there were women on the spaceship at all, right. uh, you know, yeah. as opposed to maybe the occasional passenger, but to have women working on a spaceship. Um, so right. officers, officers right. that was extraordinary. Yeah. And then having a Russian on the bridge, yeah. So, like, these are mm -hmm. uh, comical. Uh, the um, is hardly radical now. Definitely, which is why sci-fi is interesting, because as you said at the beginning, every 20 years or so, you go back and certain things are just dead yeah, and dead. almost uh -huh. difficult to read because of that. And then other ideas can stay vibrant because they might not have been tapped yet or they might not have been incorporated into society. So in that way. I was, uh, you were asking about some of the African writers. Um, I've, I'm just mm -hmm. looking it up now. The uh, Nigerian Harry Potter, uh, Akata Witch. There's a whole series of them. Okay. And it's by Nnedi cool. Okorafor. Uh, so she's a Nigerian American. Um, mm -hmm. There's Octavia Butler. I've talked about Samuel R. Delaney, who's still writing. Nalo Hopkinson. Mm -hmm. um, one of the f most popular ones right now is N.K. Jemison. You know, I don't know what you want to do mm -hmm. about that, but the, these um, writers are coming at science fiction from a perspective that hasn't been done to death. And that's with science fiction, right. you, you do something to death. It's no life in it. And <laughs> then you have to move on. And then every once in a while, like with um, Bill Stevenson with, and um, who started cyberpunk neuromancer, uh, a Vancouver guy. William Will, Gibson. Yeah, William Gibson. Um, you have a new perspective and then it, a, a new kind of subgenre just comes in uh, full blown and then gets uh, mm -hmm. exploited and, uh, and figured out until it's uh, used up. And then it just becomes one of the many things that you use. Well, uh, the African uh, writers, I think, are, are mining this amazing vein of mythology and culture and social perspectives that we just haven't seen. In, in, oh, in oh, I need oh, to start reading some of this stuff myself yeah. now. And, and there's That's also a number of First Nations in the US and Canada. Uh, so, um, mm -hmm. But yeah, I'll give you a list. That's awesome. And then the sad and I just wanted puppies, to get it on the on the, the sad puppies. Yeah, the sad They're puppies the is the best description I've are, heard. Uh, well, they call themselves the sad puppies. So, oh, yeah, they that's do. That's the name of their movement. And then uh, oh, my the Lord. more radical ones call themselves the rabid puppies. And they uh, <laughs> tried to take over the SF awards and uh, uh, as a voting block. 
to um, outvote. I don't know what put down they use for the group that they disapprove of. I'm not going to look it up, but it's certainly no. uh, they do feel that they've been shunted to the side and that they're unfairly disparaged and uh, uh, mocked and not taken seriously in the SF field. And uh, they may be right. I mean, like. <laughs> I mean, there's a large political movement of people who are similarly yeah, exactly, angry. exactly, rabid puppies. Yep. <laughs> and I don't think we need to go yeah. into a political discussion. No. Try to skirt yeah, that <laughs> gravitational. Yeah, this well. is like boring. This is an example of it might be all exciting and alive in the in the culture, but if it's been worked out and done in science fiction, you say move on. Not interesting, boring. Let's move to the next one. And so, what's going on in science fiction? The live stuff is. Like mythologies mm -hmm. and uh, you know, as as I said, that are non-Western. So enough with the castles mm -hmm. and the you know all the stories, fantasies, um, set in some vague European background. Done to death. <laughs> um, yeah. Another uh, is identity. Uh, you can't have science fiction right now without dealing with identity, and uh, usually in the form mm. of body changes, but not necessarily. So. Right. You identify as a woman, you're in a man's body. How does that do about the way you're feeling? Uh, gender, you can't have serious science fiction these days without um, uh, some diversity in sexual orientation. It used to be, uh, you know, to have a gay or lesbian character was a big deal. Uh, now, if you don't have one, it's like, what are you saying and how are you dealing with it and how are you handling that as a plot element? Um, and hmm increasingly in the, in the more modern ones, uh, gender and gender. Identity. Well, and what's interesting is, and going back to the kind of core root of its, its um, genre of ideas, um, and not to totally attack J.K. Rowling, but she has recently come out and said that a few of her characters were gay or, or um, trans or anything like this. But, you know, going through the text itself, there's no real indication necessarily um she's, or she's it's superfluous at, at best this is not well but but i think this is but i'm, I'm using that to kind of say you know just to have token representation exactly. of a thing is not the same as as saying this is something how does this affect society how does this affect people how does this affect individuals and we're going to look at that and that's yeah. what i think you you're meaning when you say it's a genre of ideas it's it's saying you know, we are obsessed with what does it mean to to interact with different types of societies? Okay, that's one. Or be challenged by different, or what is? But then now it's you know more personal. And what is it to be one's self? And what is yeah. what are the constituent parts of oneself? Yeah. Um, and how does oneself fit into society? And what happens? You know, and when you can look at that as an idea, as opposed to just saying we have a representative of this, 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 this. Therefore, we're all good. And therefore, it's sci-fi. That's not what it's about, right? It's about what are the ideas that are being explored through narrative. I think so. And I, when I think about the um, SF that I I use, you see, I I don't say sci-fi. It's you know, it mm -hmm. was like I grew up when sci-fi was a bad, bad word. I don't, I have no idea whether it's acceptable anymore, but I still say SF. So it used to uh -huh. be you'd read SF set in the uh, far to medium future. So you got this guy, he goes out, you know, he gets up, he gets dressed, he goes for work in a spaceship, he comes home and his wife is there cleaning up the kitchen 
and cooking. <laughs> and you'd read this and you'd say, so yeah. it's like 300 years from now and you still got the mm -hmm. housewife and the guy going out for the nine to five. So the, the way that SF does this uh, is that it holds something, generally it holds something stable and it explores other stuff. And that's why it ages so badly. Because some of well, the so, things it holds yeah. stable, you look back and you think, no one thought to even ask why this housewife is still in the kitchen, why there's so a kitchen. Was it, was it Jules Verne who wrote The Time Machine? Or I can't That's remember. That's H.G. Wells. H.G. Wells, yeah. and he goes uh, into the future yeah. and is this perfect society, but there's like a dark underbelly. Well, it's certainly perfect for the of? ones in, uh, uh, yeah, it's the Morlocks and the uh, Eloys or something. Yeah. So I was thinking about that, and and this is me coming from training as a as a classical uh, theater performer, and uh, so kind of taking four hundred year old ideas uh, and saying, what's the most interesting part about this idea? Mm -hmm. It's not necessarily that it's future; it's that it's looking at something from a different perspective, or or exposing this conflict, or exposing this uh, challenge, or or experience that all humans for the most part have, uh, they were just looking at it from their perspective. So how do we take that and modernize it uh, so that a modern audience will feel similar to what we think the original audience uh, author was wanting the audience to feel. Um, and I was kind of thinking how that 100, 200 year old piece of science fiction could be told as a near future person going back in time to the industrialized slave trade in the Americas because you had like, that's what that world was. Um, and it would feel as different as going into the far future. Um, well, that's, you got two in interesting points around that. One is science fiction is all always about the world you're in right now. Mm -hmm. And what you're doing is you're, you're looking at um, themes, emerging themes, like, uh, you know, you've got a little weed here. What's going to happen to this weed? It's uh, looking at the patterns that are happening right now and then playing with how they will maybe transform into the in, in the future. But it's always about now. Um, right. And uh, but what you're saying about the, the past is interesting because Neil Stevenson, um, I may not I'm not uh, quoting him here, but he, he he said at a certain point, historical fiction started interesting science fiction writers uh, because mm -hmm. if you take history seriously if you go back into time it's very much like projecting yourself into a future society uh it's the yeah. the ways that people think about themselves and about others is like sf and so there's a whole crew of sf writers who went into serious um historical fiction and certainly stevenson with his the um system of a world that's right holy cow that is uh, fascinating yeah, looking at the enlightenment period yeah um, mm -hmm. and it really is because because science fiction is this kind of speculative right like you were saying uh earlier about the author who was saying you know my four wives and five husbands or whatever back yeah. home and if you look at uh current you know you look at romeo and juliet which i've been looking at on um uh, my own uh in shakespeare it's this world with all these obligations and responsibilities and uh they they're still human and yeah. they still have the feelings that we have yeah but the whole world is different and all of the assumptions are different and so it is almost the same as being in 
a future realm um, because the society well, is just so. And the, there's a quote there. It, it's the past is a foreign country. They do things differently there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, they use words differently. They treat one another differently. And, and mm-hmm. it's really hard to judge somebody in the past by this. It, it's just like going to a foreign country. And if right. you're a science fiction writer, um, then going into that to the past is exactly like going into another uh, world society where you're trying to uh, think. And it turns out I've, I've had a weakness for Regency uh, romances for years. So this is one of these shameful <laughs> You have to describe things. what that is. Oh, my goodness. You have to describe what yeah, that is. Yeah, so, so science fiction is trash. Uh, it's got, you know, it's low class. <laughs> it's nowhere near as disparaged as Regency romances. Regency romances are romantic novels that are set during the English Regency, which only lasted about 12 years or so. Um, it was about the time of the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, and uh, it's set... This is under Cromwell, right? No, 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 much later than that. It's uh, like 1812. Okay. 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 So uh, it, it, this was a regent, and again, I'm, you know, blanking out. I, you would think all the ones I've read, I would be able to tell you exactly what it involved. But, uh, but that's not you know, what's important. Jane Austen wrote Regency romances, but high class, you know, literature. The great thing about Regency romances, I just found out that many people in science fiction like Regency romances, but, you know, they're embarrassed about it, so they don't talk about it. The Regency uh, society was extremely rigid, and I'm talking about the aristocratic and the higher um, levels of society in England. So so about 5% of the actual tiny, population. Oh, tiny, tiny, yeah. much, much smaller. <laughs> so right. uh, they there were rules around, uh, you know, the, the coming out, the, the, uh, the debut, the marriage market, how uh, the rules around honor, the rules around um, rules upon rules upon rules. In other words, it's exactly like a certain type of science fiction where you have humans mm. and you put all these completely arbitrary rules in place and then you see how they act. And so right, you play it out. You just play it out and explore. And so uh, the, the, the better Regency romances will talk about that. So that the sexual hypocrisy, the, uh, the way that uh, some uh, women had to act like this and other women had to act like that. And what happened when a woman lost her reputation and she moved from one classification to another. That's kind of a science fiction exploration um, set in mm. another uh, society. But it just happens that we can use the Regency as a nice sandbox because all the rules are laid out and then you can riff on them. And then you can share it with other authors and um, uh, kind of uh, p- uh, play with the idea. That's very interesting. As well as as well as throwing in a romance. Right. And the funny thing about almost all genres, almost all genres like a romance. Right. <laughs> we're all suckers for love. <laughs> Whether, yeah. We're all suckers for love. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I mean, we could keep going. I want to keep going. So I don't know if you have to um, if you have to duck out anytime oh, soon. Oh, I or... think. I, I think that's all I, I uh It's a good this is a good long session. Time. We can come back and always you okay. know, we're, I'm gonna keep trying to have you back as, as frequently as possible just at least to, to talk to you whether or not people are listening. Um <laughs> but uh I think this is a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you for, for talking science fiction. Okay. Thank you. And it's always fun and uh I'll give you a whole list and uh and we'll talk Great. again. Okay, thanks so much. Bye. Bye bye.
So that was Dr. Gillian Kerr with me, Koi, for our discussion on science fiction. I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, as always, I have to tell you to subscribe, rate us, share on social media or in the meat space, as it were. Um, if you have any suggestions or comments, um, well, we're building our audience, so I don't think we have an official place uh, to leave them other than on Stitcher or iTunes as uh, where you can leave all of those comments and just make them public, you know? I'm not scared of feedback. So until next time, this has been Koi with The Annex.